As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to Rates and Barrels. It is Friday, November 13th, 2020. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris. On this episode, the Marlins have made a groundbreaking hire. Kim Eng has been hired to be their next GM. We'll talk about that. And then a whole host of fantasy topics, a lot of great questions that have come in, looking at self-evaluation. What do you do coming out of a fantasy season that kind of helps you going forward? We'll talk about uh, some real life versus some fantasy value related problems that come up with five by five and and some possible changes. There've been some recent pleas in my emails to lead a push to remove stolen bases from our game. So we'll dig into that a little bit as well. And we'll talk about ways we can search for meaning in decisions that teams make with you know, things like their batting order, the order in which they use relievers, the order in which they line up starters to begin the season. So whole different mess of topics over the course of the next hour or so. But you know, Kim Ng is finally a GM, and I say that because, I kid you not, for at least the last 10 years, any offseason where we had GM openings, she would be one of those candidates who was considered a favorite, and yet every time, someone else would get hired, and the Marlins, they went ahead, they made the move, and I'm so happy to see this because... It's groundbreaking in men's sports in North America. This goes beyond baseball, too, to have a woman in the GM chair for any men's sports team. It blows my mind. It took this long to happen, but Kim Eng is extremely deserving, and I'm just so happy to see it. Yeah, I mean, baseball is a sport where almost no GM played the sport. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> at a high level um and then baseball is an interesting th- situation where you know you c- you can't even use that as a barrier really because uh there isn't really like woman baseball you know what i mean they don't they're all pushed towards softball so kim ing was a, a softball star you know how much how how relevant is that i don't know the rest of the the rest of the league is hiring you know uh, based on analytics experience and MBAs and stuff like that. And she's she's got all that part of the resume down. 
Uh, she beat Scott Boris in an arbitration case, which is a kind of a bit of, of lore for you. Uh, that's a pretty rare, that. rare thing. And then uh, another thing that's cool about her uh, and that's specific to the Marlins is that she's been spending the last few years with the MLB commissioner's office working on pipelines to new markets like Brazil, China, Mexico, and India. Mexico is maybe not the newest, but she's helped clean up a lot of the corruption that was in the pe- pipeline between Mexico and America. There should be more Mexican-American players. Uh, the problem is that there are just these arcane league structures and corruption, um, and she's cut through a fair amount of that and changed some of the rules down there. So, um, you know, if uh, if and, and I think Miami uh, having a bunch of Mexican players would be kind of a cool thing, you know. Uh, maybe uh, bringing some Brazilian players in uh, so that Jan Gomes is not the only dude out there. Um, and, uh, and maybe another million-dollar arm situation with uh, some guys from India. So, I don't know. It would be cool, cool to see the Marlins take more advantage of that. I feel like they haven't established an identity, you know, in terms of uh, attracting new talent. Like, what have they done really well in terms of drafting? They haven't done that well in acquiring. Mike Michael Hill made a lot of trades, but, you know, you're looking at all the players he traded for, and I, I can't sort of point to a guy and be like, well, they got Isan Diaz. <laughs> like, I don't Who's there, like... Did, Brian Anderson was a, um, a draft, I think, right? That, he was one of their own prospects. So yep. that's... that's that's their best player, their best position player, at least. Their best pitchers were all traded for. Maybe Pablo Lopez was a draft. But, you know, uh, they're, they're looking for an identity, and she can give it to them. Yeah, I mean, you go back and look at some of the stops. She was an assistant GM in 1998 with the Yankees. <laughs> 1998. She has 30 years' experience working in baseball. And, again, the opportunity... Finally came through. So happy for Kim. As far as I know, no DUIs either. Right. Yeah. I mean, the flyby on that is yes. Look at what's happening with Tony Larusa. Look at what he's done. Look at the opportunity he gets after ten years of not being in the dugout. And then look at how much harder Kim Eng had to work to get her first GM opportunity. Like that's just mind blowing. And you see it if you look at Twitter today you will see effusive praise from people that have worked with Kim Eng. It's all over. Ned Coletti, who was hired over her to be the GM of the Dodgers back in 2005, he kept her as an assistant. Mm-hmm. He was one of the people that immediately said, this is well-deserved, like long overdue is the refrain we keep hearing. So again, a great day for baseball. Obviously, just a, an awesome story, and I think it's really kind of changed a lot about how people are thinking about the Marlins. Like the the Sherman Jeter Marlins and now the Kim Ang Marlins are not the Jeffrey Loria fire sale Marlins that we grew accustomed to for the first 20 or so years of the franchise's existence. Yeah, yeah. Long overdue. And I feel like um, one thing that's cool about this is that hopefully uh, it signals some you know, some of the beating back of the toxic work environment that used to exist within baseball pretty pervasively. Um, My first couple of looks into how front offices were with each other, you know, sort of behind the scenes, how they how they talked with each other and and how people were treated. um, I came away with a really negative feeling about um, 
how uh, women would be treated and, and how misogynistic the culture was and, and stuff like that. So um, I, I'm feeling more and more, the more that I, I, I get looks into the modern um, you know, front office, I feel uh, more inclusiveness, uh, more of a uh, priority on uh, inclusiveness and less of these sort of old ideas of let's sit around and make jokes uh, until the wee hours of the morning. So um, I, I applaud it uh, from a lot of different di directions. The culture shift is long overdue as well. I'm glad we're beginning to see that happen around the league. Let's talk about some other things that were on our mind this week. The question that came in in recent weeks that I want to start with today was a self-evaluation question from Isaac. He wrote, very open-endedly, do you have any particular tips or tricks for end-of-season self-evaluation and debriefing on how your teams did? So, you know, I'll throw it to you first. After you get through a season, do you have a process in place to sort of look back and, and figure out what went right and what went wrong? I do. I, uh, I, first of all, just sort of count how I did, you know, look at my finishes, look at my, my wins, look at my losses. Um, a lot of my leagues are dynasty. So you have to kind of do that. Where are we in the win curve? Are we selling? Or are we buying this off season? So you have to do that naturally, but even a redraft, especially something like AL labor, I want to win it. I want to win it. I want to learn from last year and I want to win next year. And so I always do a kind of look around the league, look at the standings, look at my team, look at what I did right and what I did wrong. Um, the, the, one, the two things I would caution, and I guess the one thing I would caution is overlearning from one year or one team. Um, and especially I would uh, caution that after this season, sometimes things just don't go right. Sometimes you just had a bunch of injuries on one team and you know, there is enough chaos in injury prediction that um, I wouldn't just go from that and say next year, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, draft a single person who's been injured in the last two years. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> that, I think would be kind of over learning uh, from your situation. But over time, uh, my finishes in AL labor, for example, have gotten better. Uh, last year, I finished second. Um, and what I've just generally realized is, I have to um, put a little bit more investment in my pitching. And every year um, I, I tweak that, the, the shape of my pitching staff, because it's ironic. I mean, I feel like I can do pitching really well, so I don't uh, put a lot of money into it. And then, um, you know, I think my projections are good and I, I'm good at playing time. So my teams are always amazing at like home runs, RBI, um, runs, and... Um, you know, so recently I've I've realized I need to do more investment in stolen bases um, and more in pitching, and um, that's why I almost got there this year. And uh, you know, if Severino was it Severino this year or last year? Severino was hurt this year. Yeah, so if Severino had been healthy, I think I would have won this year. So, um, and again, I'm not going to try and not do a single thing on injury, but one of the things I might learn from that is let me put injury in my rankings just so that I can see the flag. You know, I think the flag on Severino would have been yellow or red even even before his injury this year. Um, and that might have helped me pick somebody else uh, near the top there. Yeah, I think that's it's a good starting point, too, when you gotta look at all those things together and, and figure out like, OK, What's the tactical adjustment to 
building rankings or evaluating players. I think it's almost more about that for me than it is about changing the way I draft or actually go through an auction. I think you can get kind of caught up in an individual strategy that worked in a particular year. And what I mean by that is if you were to go back-to-back aces in a snake draft and then get closers early and you won that year, you might be too married to that strategy. If you did that and took 13th out of 15 teams, you might throw that entire strategy out. And that's not the way you want to play. I think every season is unique. Every approach can be viable. Most approaches can be viable with the right players. I think that's an old Gene McCaffrey line. Like Any strategy could work with the right players. And to a large extent, I believe that's true. So I think it it kind of cuts both ways. Like you can almost get caught up in success and try to replicate it. We talked back uh, during Labor Weekend. I was looking at the team that I had last season and what went right, what went wrong. And one thing that went wrong was that I spent too much on closers. I had, I think, Corey Knable uh, and Kenley Jansen in 2019. Mm, and That's I like came back. 38 bucks or something. Right, yeah, you and I talked about that. So the night before the auction, we're talking about this. So yeah, I'm probably not going to do that again. I go to the table the next day, and I come away with Josh Hader and Kenley Jansen. Literally, <laughs> two two guys from the same teams, one exact same guy, and yet it's like, huh. I just said Which this you, probably you wasn't the best thing to do. The year you had the uh, Knable in. Right, and maybe that's not the only reason why I did that, but mm-hmm. it... I don't. I don't think I, I. I didn't win because I had that much tied up in relievers. I won despite it. I won because I did other things right. I won because of all the stuff we talked about after the season a year ago. I won because Howie Kendrick was a reserve on that team and Kevin Newman was a reserve on that team. I won because you know, my one and three dollar players were good and because my nine to nineteen dollar guys were solid. I had a bunch of Schwabers and David Peraltas and. You know, I made a few pickups. Uh, Aristides Aquino was a great late season pickup, mm. especially in NL only. Like, so I think you have to kind of drill into all these different facets of your roster, regardless of whether you did well or whether you did poorly. Because yeah. I think you can trick yourself into thinking you failed because of, of X when you may have failed because of Y and Z, or you were successful yeah. because of no. X, but you were successful because of Y and Z. That's really that's really that's really astute. I, I I like that because I was just looking at uh, my barf standings, Bay Area Roto Fantasy, uh, the league I took over for Laura Michaels, uh, rest in peace. Um, and uh, uh, there, I was trying to see what is my lesson. So my first three picks were Trout. Uh, it might have got a Trout, Jordan, uh, Devers, or just you know it was around the. I was I, I had like first pick I think or second pick. Uh, so the, those two were really close. Devers and, and Jordan were very close. And then I came back with like Mustakas Muncy, right? And it's OBP league. And I thought, man, I am an OBP stud. Uh, Trout's going to steal me enough bases to make this work. Devers is going to steal bases. Well, Devers stole zero bases. Uh, Trout stole one base. Jordan Alvarez went down with injury. Mustakas stole one base. Um, and Muncy and, uh, Mustakis were okay, but they gave me a collective sort of 335 OBP. I wasn't necessarily an OBP monster. And there's a couple things I could have learned from this. A, I waited too long to, to, to uh, buy a starting pitcher, right? That's definitely, if you're going that far down, uh, my first starting pitcher was Charlie Morton. 
So uh, maybe that's what you could learn. And I think that is something to learn here. Uh, B, um, I didn't focus on steals, but you know, I got Trent Grisham later. I had other guys. I did okay in steals in the end. Um, I don't know if it was too bad there. C, I think I'm going to, and this is the one I think is really the thing to learn. I think I don't want picks around the turn. You know, what's that called when you turn in your preferences for where you want to draft? Oh, the KDS. KDS. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't pay attention to the KDS and just basically gave them beginning, end, and then middle. Actually, I think you want the middle and you don't want the beginning and the end. And there's actually research by Ariel Cohen that suggests that this is true. And the reason is if you're on the ends, you can't react to a run. And you can think, oh, there's six closers left. I'm going to get a third baseman. You know, I'm going to get Max Muncy because there's six closers left. And by the time, you know, those, those 30 picks go, all six closers could be gone super easily. Yeah. And you'd be like, whoops, uh, now Charlie Morton is my starting pitcher. You know, that's exactly how it happened. I was like, ooh, I love getting like Muncie and Moose here. Um, I'll get, there's so many starting pitchers I love. And then they, then they all went away. And I was like, oh, I guess Charlie Morton is my ace. So um, there's different things to learn, but, you know, don't overlearn any one aspect of it. Don't go and buy Malik Smith in the third round because you you know there, you didn't have steals. Um, but I think in this case, um, all of it would have gone smoother if I'd had a middle situation and if I had maybe invested a little bit more in starting pitching. Right, and I think as an example, you know, if if I looked at all of my teams, and some people don't have the luxury of playing in five plus leagues every year, right? So yeah. people play in one, maybe two. So you only have that limited so about league that to one, look at. That one team, yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, for me, I'm like, okay, I was light in steals across the board this year. Why was I light in steals? Oh, the pattern was I was waiting to get steals, and the players that I was waiting on to get steals, they lost their jobs. So maybe I have to emphasize guys who play up the middle or good defenders who... Have some speed with their power. They have speed to go with something else, and they're at least going to have playing time. Like, you don't want to chase speed for guys that don't have secure playing time. Maybe that's the sort of tactical adjustment. I mean, I think those are the types of things that you want to do is sort of figure out process-wise, was there a common thread with the the pitchers you took a chance on late or even with the ones you drafted early? If you had pitchers you drafted early that busted, you know, if you went, I don't know, Morton and was there another pitcher in that range who wasn't good from last season kind of in that 75 to, to 90 range like if you waited on on pitching and you tried to double tap with two guys in that range and it didn't work did it not work because of those two guys specifically or did it not work because you simply weren't getting enough strikeouts because the guys drafted ahead of them are afforded the opportunity for more innings or they had a little bit less injury risk or you know there's there's probably a why behind all of the what went right and what went wrong and kind of drilling into that. That's what I try to do as part of my self-evaluation of what my teams were doing and what they weren't doing. So it's not always a wholesale adjustment. I think rarely is it a wholesale adjustment at this point. I've been playing for almost 20 years. So uh, could, could I have a complete crap year and have to change more things than usual? Yeah, that's totally possible. Um, could I have an amazing year where I win everything? I guess that's possible too. But even if that happened, I don't think I would sit back and go, everything I did was perfect, so I'm just going to do that again. That doesn't work. It's a different board every year. Uh, circling back, though, to your point 
about KDS and where you want to draft. I, I think Ariel's research is really interesting, but I think there's an advantage of being on the wheel. I don't think it's necessarily going to be borne out in math over the long run, but I think the advantage, while you are concerned about missing out on a run, you're worried about all the saves going away, or you're worried about all the, the speedsters going away at a certain point, building a team two players at a time where you're making two decisions back-to-back while everybody else has to sit there except for the person on the other end and build it one piece at a time, to me, that's easier. That's, it's easier to see the target, to see what you're aiming for, and to get there because you can say, okay, we're getting a little light on speed, so I should address it here because there's going to be 28 picks before my next one, so I'm definitely going to get some speed. And the other thing that looks like it might run out is saved, so I'm going to go ahead and take a closer here. I think what it takes, though, is it takes a willingness to say ADP doesn't matter. Groupthink mm-hmm. is not that important. I, I can be the early pick. I can be the min pick on this player. And I'm not saying min pick somebody by 50. Don't be four rounds early. But it's okay if you set the min pick, especially if you're on an end, because you need to get the categories, the, the targets. You need to reach what you need to reach. And it takes discipline. Some people can't play that way. I just think, for me, the way my brain is wired, I tend to thrive when I have a wheel, and I feel like I'm more susceptible to chasing things that I shouldn't chase when I'm stuck in the middle. Uh, there, one toggle that, I, that, I'm listen, that I'm hearing in my head when I'm listening to you is about sort of aggressiveness versus defensiveness or sort of aggressiveness about setting the market versus uh, focusing on your own team and doing and, and addressing needs sort of deal. Uh, and the reason I bring that up is because I think maybe at one point I thought if I get Mustakis and Muncie, I can create like a second base run or I get two of the last good second basemen on the market. Um, and they also have multi-position eligibility. So that'll be good for like the COVID environment. Uh, it ended up being useful, actually, because uh, I ended up having to deal with Mustakis being gone, you know. Um, but, um, uh, you know, you can get into trouble, I think, at the wheel sometimes being like, I'm going to create a closer run by taking two closers when you're like, maybe I just needed one closer. <laughs> I don't know what I thought I was going to do to these other teams. Sometimes I think if you if you do focus on your own needs, um, there's probably was a, a pick that I could have made that had more spe- speed than Muncie and Mustakis that where I took them, or maybe that's where I should have taken some pitchers um, and thought about that earlier. So, um, yeah, again, just don't overlearn. Uh, try to look at what the try to like come I would see this try to come up with three reasons why you lost and three things you did good you know three things you did well and three things you didn't do well and uh don't try to hyper focus on one of the things you did wrong because you probably did more than one thing wrong yeah you should uh look back at the draft board or auction board mm-hmm. kind of see uh, it's easier to get back into the mindset I think my recall is pretty good but my recall of how every single pick in my online championship went back in July, it's not perfect. So I've got to bring up the board. I've got to look at it. And I'll remember when I start looking at it. Yeah, actually, I was kind of torn between these two players. Or I was thinking about speed versus uh, getting another starting pitcher. And it went wrong. And if I had done it this way, there were these options here. Kind of seeing where value came from in the league that you played in, I think that helps you get a better sense of where you might find it in the future as well. So I think you're looking back at the results 
I find that to be one of the first things I do that has a lot of value just because it helps me sort of refresh what I was thinking when I put the team together in the first place. You still oh, want to look dude. back through the season and see what happened along the way there too. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Thank you for making that point. I brought the board up. I got it. <laughs> so I had second pick and I did Trout, right? So I did Devers Jordan, which would, of course, put me behind on speed. But I thought I had some from Trout, right? Then I did Muncie Morton. All right. So I didn't do Muncie Mustakis. I wasn't getting too crazy. I did Muncie Morton because I was like, I need, a, I need a pitcher. But, you know, this guy's going to pick before me. But he already took pitchers. So I'll take Muncie first. And then on the way back, I'll take Morton. That's what I did. On the on the then the next time through, I took Mustakis Carrasco. So I was actually playing with this guy that was stuck behind me. I knew that he had pitchers, and so I knew that I could take Morton and Carrasco. So that part actually worked out okay. You know, Morton and Carrasco were okay in in the end. Neither one was like an ace is ace, but they were okay. Here's where I and then I took Hunjin Ryu in the ninth. So like my first three pitchers were okay. I think that wasn't necessarily how bad I was. Let me tell you who I took in between to deal with my steals problem and my first closer. Oscar Mercado, Emilio Pagan, Lorenzo Cain. All right. I mean, one of those guys opted out. So I think I think you can say, well, stuff happens. That's, that's as fluky as a season ending injury. Oscar Mercado was a little bit more Billy Hamilton than we than we should have than we realized. There is something to learn there. He didn't hit the ball hard. He wasn't a he wasn't really a good hitter. So that's one. And then Emilio Pagan, you know, I think he's an obvious closer too. And I did lose out on the closer. There was a, before I picked Emilio Pagan, I thought I'll take Hunjin Ryu because I need a, I need a, a, a starter. And then, um, I, and then it went Hand, Hendricks, Neris, Jansen, Giles. And so I was like, oh, I guess Pagan. Mm. So there was a little bit of missing out on a run. I believe that can happen in the middle. And I think what it can do is it can lead you to take a player who should not go there. Mm-hmm. Legitimate FOMO. There's FOMO that we talk about randomly that we're laughing about, but that's actual FOMO <laughs> causing you to choose a player who carries a lot more risk than a player you should draft at that point in time. But you're so glued to that run of closers that just happened that you talk yourself in the moment and you say, oh, if I don't get Emilio Pagan right now, I'm not going to have a closer with good ratios. And you, you end up drafting a guy that is stable with those skills, but definitely was not stable with that actual role yet. And that was, um, that draft was pretty early, right? You guys do the barf draft pretty early. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, uh, we did this before COVID. And then we debated 
if we were going to redraft it or what we we're going to do. So we just decided to keep the team. So I want to talk about Oscar Mercado just for a second, because I think this is part of retracing your steps. You see a player you didn't hit on that really hurt you because you needed those steals. And the question I would ask is, should you have seen what happened to Oscar Mercado in 2020 coming? If we go back to 2019, I go to the Baseball Savant page. Sprint speed, 98th percentile. Outs above average, which I think for a center fielder is really important. 88th percentile. Okay, so we have, we have a good defender who runs well. You mentioned the power not being safe. That was there. That was on display. There was blue ink. 25th percentile in average exit velocity. 18th percentile in barrel percentage. Like, yeah. That's a red flag. And in this case, the red flag is blue. It's a... It's an icy cold right. beer that Eno and I don't really want to drink unless we have to drink <laughs> that exact beer. So there were warning signs with Mercado, and I wonder, and I liked him too, I wonder if it was easy to get caught up in the price relative to need and to just see only the possibility that he'd get you 20 steals with ease and to look right past the possibility that he wouldn't hit enough to keep his job. Like that, yeah. that's probably the path. I, I don't think it's obvious because plenty of smart people, like uh, just take me out of the equation. There are plenty of smart people who liked Oscar Mercado at that price. That's what the market, you know, put him at. I just, I didn't see, I think the other thing I saw with Cleveland, I didn't see anybody else on that depth chart who was reasonably going to take his job. But they were so weak in the outfield with depth. I didn't think there was a lot of internal pressure on him, even if he did go into a slump. But outfield is kind of like the second base of the out of the team. The outfield is the second base of the team. Um, you just find them. You know what I mean? Most teams don't. There's not a lot of trades. There's fewer trades with outfielders involved. Uh, because teams just feel like they can find them. They don't have to trade for them. You know, there's notable exceptions, like the Cardinals keep trading them away, and the Indians keep trading for them. You know, <laughs> They actually even lined up on the Mercado trade. Uh, but I'm trying to find someone that's like that this year. Uh, Miles Straw uh, comes to mind. He's projected for 26 stolen bases with a 338 slugging. I could see the Astros... Even if they go into the season with him out of position, finding a way to replace him pretty quickly, um, I think he's more obvious than Mercado, right? Um, yeah, people are going to fall into that trap. I think the Victor Robles might be there, but he has more power. I think demonstrated power than Mercado so far. Leody Tavares. Oh, Leody is okay. Yeah, Leody. He is a risk. Leody has a lot Solak of similarities. There. They've done Solak there put this one in a time capsule. This is what I think right now. And a year from now, we're talking about Leody being a bust. I think that Leody Tavares is the only true quality center fielder the Rangers have that's anywhere near big league ready. So I think yeah, that no, stabilizes I, I mean, playing time. I don't time. think Solak is a quality center fielder, but there are teams that run out non-quality defenders at positions. <laughs> it's true, and the Rangers are absolutely one of them. I've done that before. So yeah. then, okay, so then... Learning from Mercado a little bit, what what would cause that to happen? I don't know. Maybe Tavares isn't hitting the ball very hard, and he's you know under 200 with his average, and his OBP's low, and there's no power. Well, there's blue ink 
There's the XBA, the X slug in the 26th and 23rd percentile. There's a 39 percentile barrel rate. I think he's very close. I think we didn't think so. We didn't think Mercado was like Leody Tavares, but they're very close. They are very close. They, okay, key difference, one key difference. Tavares is a bit younger. So the, to me, the, the chances that he's a finished product are much yeah. lower. So I think that's in there. The Rangers are not, we don't know. They might not be competitive. So yeah, they may keep them in there for be. a year. I mean, they certainly don't look like a front runner in that division. So they can wait a little longer if it's not going well. Cleveland, yeah. with pressure from other teams that's, in that division, didn't have that luxury. true of like a Victor Reyes, probably true. A two who I think is similar. All right. Let's, let's do the same thing with Victor Reyes. So Leody Tavares is risky. Mm-hmm. Is he draftable in that range? I think, I mean, it's always about price, right? If Leody Tavares gets uh, as much helium as Oscar Mercado got, because I took him in barf. I took him, I took Oscar Mercado in a, I think it's a 15 team league. I took him in the eighth. And that's too early. That's yeah, about 100 picks earlier than Tavares is going in early drafts so far, but okay. a lot can change between now and March. I took Trent Grisham in the 20th and Kevin Kiermeyer in the 22nd. If we're talking about Leody Tavares or Victor Reyes in the 22nd, I'm good. I mean, Kevin Kiermeyer could have been hurt all year. You know, I took Harrison Bader the next pick. He didn't he didn't do anything for me. So hmm. all right. Maybe a lesson learned though from Oscar Mercado as it applies don't, to Don't Leody let a Tavares. guy with no power uh, slip into your top ten rounds. <laughs> right. Uh around pick two hundred, I think you can be a little Things more change. aggressive in those spots. Yeah, you can you can try to find that those cheap are, speed there. Those are like two to five dollar players in auctions, you know, right? Where are you willing to take on those flaws? You shouldn't take those flaws in the one hundred to one fifty range. In the two hundred plus range, it's a little more palatable. And I don't think I don't think that Adalberto Monsi counts here because he does have legit power. It's not it's not a question of power. It's just a question of contact, really. That's about the only question. So it's a red flag on Mondesi, but it's not a bunch of red flags. You know, like if we're thinking about this in the red, yellow, green flags thing, Mondesi has a bunch of green flags and one red flag. There's a strange thing that I've come to believe with drafts and auctions, and I don't know how to prove it, and maybe you can't. I'm not sure. I feel like you kind of win and lose in the middle third of the draft and the auction like you you win by connecting on a bunch of players that are future early rounders and you lose by ending up with too many mercados which is probably an oversimplification of fantasy baseball as a whole but i don't know when i look back at teams i see the guys that i crushed on in that range i mean like in tout wars luke voigt for nine bucks like that was a huge oh yeah Voigt was on this team move. and I took him in the 14th that's a league changing maneuver a team changing sort of maneuver Kyle Tucker was in that range I mean if you're you're right I lost this in the 8th to 12th round I lost this with Mercado Pagan Kane I mean that's um, that's that was almost it you know Michael Givens is my second closer like boom that's those that's in the middle rounds my late rounds were good Trent Grisham even Kiermaier Turnbull Presley, you know, like there were some good players in my late rounds and my early rounds were pretty good too, except for Jordan Alvarez. So yeah, uh, I, I could, I could get on board with that. I wonder, I wonder if there's a way to uh, study that. 
you could lose a draft or an auction other places. You could absolutely screw up the beginning so badly that the middle doesn't matter. That's that's possible. But if we're assuming a room full of players that generally know what they're doing, that's where I feel like you get more separation is in that that middle third of the draft and of the auction. So thank you very much for that question. It inspired a, a lot of uh, spirited discussion. We really appreciate that. That one came from Isaac. When you get injured, you don't want to wait for answers and options. That's why it may be time to explore the Nano Experience, a revolutionary treatment option designed to help active people get back to the lifestyles they love. Nanotechnology allows surgeons to see inside even the smallest joints and treat orthopedic conditions with a tiny camera and other nano instrumentation, all through a barely there poke hole incision. Wherever you've experienced an injury, whether it be a foot and ankle, hand and wrist, shoulder and elbow, knee or hip, Nanoarthroscopy can be used to diagnose and treat your condition in an extremely, minimally invasive way. Don't wait to learn about the revolutionary nano experience and how it could help you or someone you know after an injury. Visit arthrex.info slash theathletic. This is not medical advice and is not meant to be a substitute for advice from your physician. Talk with your physician about your health condition, potential surgical risks, and whether Arthrex products are right for you. Postoperative management is patient-specific and dependent upon your physician's assessment. Individual results will vary. If you're as obsessed with basketball as I am, then you know there's no better time of year than the NBA playoffs. Hey guys, this is JJ Redick. Twice a week, I'm cooking up something special for basketball junkies on my podcast, The Old Man and the Three. I bring on guests in all stages of their careers to talk about the league and share stories you won't hear anywhere else, like Devin Booker on why he talks so much trash or Paulo Bencaro on his shooting workouts with Kevin Durant, Ray Allen's epic free throw competitions with LeBron when they were teammates in Miami. But it's not just about the player interviews. Every Monday, I break down the top three things happening around the NBA without the outlandish takes. Often joined by masterminds of the game like Tim Legler, we dive deep into topics like rookie reports, trade breakdowns, and why is mean mugging now a tech? The Old Man of the Three is the only companion podcast you'll need during the playoffs this year. Be sure to listen to The Old Man of the Three ad-free on Wondery Plus or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get to the next question that came in. This one came from Ty, and he wrote us an email explaining how his league has changed a bit over time. It's 5 by 5 They've made the switch from average to OBP and trying to find ways to make things kind of more closely mirror what's happening in real baseball. Uh, they made a change a while back to take out saves, but put it in as saves plus holds. And uh, the question that Ty had for us was more of an idea. He wants to know, should he try to change the steals category in his league to steals plus doubles and triples? And as he writes, it keeps the speed element, doesn't overlap the other categories, at least not directly, and doesn't overrate a statistic that isn't that valued in real life. Really fast guys that steal 40 plus bases are still king because you're not likely to make up a 40 stolen base versus zero stolen base difference by someone hitting 40 doubles versus zero steals, but it also softens the need to reach for a Malik Smith or Adalberto Mondesi for fear of being left out on a category. And he's wondering if any sites allow a modification on a category stat like this. Um, I can answer that simple part first. I 99% sure fan tracks can do it. A lot of the smaller sites have some different ways to just make your own category. I think Rotowire has that sort of flexibility as well. If they don't have it already, they might be able to make it. 
if you pay for CBS, um, they'll do a lot of things for you. Like yeah, CBS so, is the king of customization. Once you pay for your league, <laughs> so you've, you've got some options to to implement this or something like it. But you know, you were working on some numbers a little earlier, kind of looking at does this have the intended effect? Is steals plus doubles and triples a good substitute for straight steals? Yeah, I did a, a, a just a leaderboard of, of this stat, and at Alberto Mondes, he's first, so you're right. Just stealing a bunch of bases is a good way to be at the top. Trevor Story, Trey Turner, Jose Ramirez, I like it so far, Kyle Tucker, and then there's Freddie Freeman, uh, which is interesting, um, and he represents um, a type of player that gets an additional boost in this metric that does not come from speed, so... Uh, here are the guys with very few stolen bases that are still in the top 25 uh, by second uh, two doubles plus triples with stolen bases. Freddie Freeman is sixth with two stolen bases. Um, Dominic Smith is 12th in this category, was 12th in this category with zero stolen bases. Uh, Jake Cronenworth was 17th in this with three stolen bases. Um, and Cesar Hernandez was 24th. Mike Yastrzemski was 23rd. Um, I mean, Mike Kostrensky had two stolen bases and Cesar Hernandez had zero. Christian Walker was 25th. So, um, there's, it definitely rewards guys who hit a bunch of doubles. And the one thing I don't like about triples is that they're noisy. Uh, you have Kyle Tucker fifth on this list because he had six triples. However, you pointed out, um, you're just counting doubles and triples. So even if the triples were noisy, they were probably at least doubles. You know, they were kind of fluky doubles is how you put it. So Right, um, yeah. I, I would never use triples as a standalone roto category. I know there's some yeah, things that are like, terrible. we're 12 by 12 and triples is a category. And I, right. I just shake my head. No, I'm like, thanks. don't do that. Don't do that. But <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think you're it, including them as part of this stat. If, if those extra bounces off an angled wall didn't happen, those hits would have been doubles anyway. But but my point is my larger point is just you'll reward some double hitters that don't have speed. So I don't know. Um, is that worse than rewarding uh, Malik Smith types? You know, you know, or Leody Tavares types? Um, I don't know. And I would point out that one thing is when they're when you do have a guy who steals a lot, and maybe their power isn't there, it usually means they're like a plus plus defender. And that's an interesting thing to reward, basically, in fantasy sports to think about. Is is Leody Tavares a good enough defender in center to make up for his other flaws? Um, that's a question that is a real-life question. It's a real-life question the Rangers will have to think about, you know? So that's an interesting fantasy question. It's a, We just spent a bunch of time talking about Mercado, Leody Tavares, and, and uh, Victor Reyes. Um, so I, I wouldn't say that the discussion around steals is totally morally bereft. <laughs> like it's not totally dirty you know it's a real thing but i i also understand the idea of like trying to get it out i mean i think you had a better solution maybe yeah i mean you could do net stolen bases as uh one alternative the other one i like it better the extra bases no what was the other one take it out oh yeah (laughs) that wasn't my idea so (laughs) i received an email from uh, a listener who will remain Anonymous. Uh, <laughs> he suggested that you just get rid of steals entirely. You can go back to a four by four if you wanted to. I guess apparently that's like the original roto because uh, Auto has a four by four, and I was kind of making fun of it. But I think um, I think Ron Chandler was talking about four by four was like the first thing. 
Four by four was original. I don't think it was steals that it was weren't K's. included. Yeah, K's K's were the pitching stat that they didn't have. But think about how few strikeouts there actually were back then. It, the one thing I really, I mean, yeah. I knew this was true, but you realize it more. Those retro drafts we were doing back when everything was on hold in like May and that part of the year. The crazy thing was when you go back and draft in 1982, a good strikeout rate was like six Ks per nine. <laughs> that was, and now you're, if you had a starter doing that, it'd be likely that that's probably your worst starter. So I understand why strikeouts were not included for pitchers back when you know, rotisserie baseball was created. Steals were a much bigger part of the game at that time. I think it was runs scored on the hitting side that was the category that they didn't use originally, that they started to use uh, as the game became a five-by-five sort of game. This comes up all the time, and I, I think you can make reasonable adjustments to your league, and I think the key is to have a nice dialogue with people in your league about those changes. What are your goals? I think, to Ty's point, his modification does what he wants it to do. Uh, to your point, I don't think chasing steals is completely devoid of value. The other example would be someone like Dylan Moore. Like Aside from wondering, is he good enough defensively to play somewhere? Is he a good enough hitter to stay in the lineup? Is he going to be efficient enough to keep stealing bases? Like I think that's a fun question to answer. And it's not perfect. It's not, it's not managing a team. It's not running a real baseball team. But it's still... It's still a thought-provoking exercise that I find enjoyable. And, and some people, including our anonymous friend, is saying, no, finding steals is not enjoyable. I hate finding steals. Steals are stupid. <laughs> I, I get that. I yeah, totally you, get that. These are real-life questions. Like the, the Mariners will have to consider whether or not they're going to give Dylan Moore the green light if he's going to uh, you know, steal 12 and get caught five times. My estimation is that they will not. Like they, he will run less uh, on, a, on a per plate yeah, appearance exactly. basis. He will run less than he did in 2020 going forward. I don't want to get rid of steals. I play five by five. I know it's not perfect. The comparison I always make is old NES games, specifically Tecmo Super Bowl. It's not the best football game that was ever made. <laughs> it's just not. I go to this all the time. It it has flaws, but. There are people that have played that game for 30 years. They have big tournaments for this. And it's still fun because there are so many tactical combinations and things you can do. And I think that same sort of game theory, that applies to 5x5. Five five. So you could tweak the categories. It's still fun. At the root, you're still trying to solve a similar puzzle. So you know the number of pieces, the difficulty of the puzzle, what the puzzle actually is when you put it together... That's all fine. You can change it as much as you want. I think if you kind of go down the, the pathway that you're going with the stolen base thing, you might end up at points just because it's easy. It's easier in like a saber points or linear weights type environment to just be like, okay, we kind of know what these things are worth. Why don't we just chase the most valuable players in baseball, like the most valuable real life players, because we can add up the linear value, the linear weight value for each event that happens on the field. Um, and we can just, uh, put that one number on them. I, for a lot of reasons, don't like those leagues because it reduces players to one number. And then, uh, trading just becomes absolutely horrific. I mean, I hate trading in points leagues. I can't stand it. Yeah. I don't want to play points myself. If you enjoy playing points, play points it's fine it's okay yeah that's just to me that's a different sort of challenge distilling everything down to one number 
it makes fantasy baseball more like fantasy football. And mm, the things yeah. that make fantasy baseball different are what I like about fantasy baseball more than fantasy football as it is. Like that's what if there was rotisserie fantasy football that people wanted to play, I'd probably like that more than the traditional head to head points fantasy football. But I am a weirdo, so <laughs> and maybe you are too. <laughs> maybe maybe we're all weirdos. Thanks a lot for the question, Ty. Let's go to our next question. This one comes from John. He writes, with people talking about how do we miss Bieber? Should we factor coaching choices more? Bieber opened the season for Cleveland, so we may not have had Bieber over Flaherty, but we should have had him over Clevenger. Just thinking about how we were looking at the Cleveland pitchers against each other. It made me think watching the Dodgers. Should we have Max Muncy over Bellinger? They wanted Muncy higher in the lineup, so should we do that in our rankings? Thanks, John. And oh, I, I see what he's saying. I, I thought that was weird, too, in the postseason, to be uh, to be honest. I don't know if we even really talked about it on any of these episodes that we did with, with Britt in October, but I got to a point where I'm like, yeah, they're both lefties. In the Dodgers' secret sauce, Max Muncy's the better hitter to have in that spot, and maybe it doesn't matter that much, but it, we're talking about the World Series. like We're talking about games that matter as much as any baseball games can matter, so there should be a preference. There should be a reason for who hits fourth and who hits sixth. I think you got to be very careful reading into lineup construction or especially rotation order as it pertains to how teams value players. I don't think it's completely meaningless, but I think it can steer you in the wrong direction more times than it can help you. Here with the Dodgers, is a, a, a ready-made example of how we could have been steered wrong. Austin Barnes is their postseason catcher. Remember? Mm-hmm. They just kept using Yasmani Grandal less and less. And it had a little bit more to do with maybe the run environment in the postseason. They were just maybe they were sure that it was going to be lower. And so a passed ball, a block, uh, you know, Grandal's not good at, at, at defense in that way. Um, you know, I, I think that uh, they they had different reasons for it. There also could be um, stuff that we don't know, Bellinger's not healthy and Muncy is or something, you know, and they're just like, right now, his oblique is hurting or something. We're not going to report this out, uh, but that's why he's here. Or a secret sauce that says, you know, that is predictive in short samples, but not for full seasons. Like next year, Bellinger might be leading off to start the year. I mean, I like even with what they did in the postseason. So um, there are... There are ways to learn it, though. I think the the easiest way to learn it, uh, learn from coaching decisions, is in the bullpen. The hierarchy of how relievers are used, or the situations in which they're used. Yeah, like for example, I wouldn't necessarily project Nick Anderson to have the most saves on the Rays next year. No, in fact, I would revert back to the more recent refrain of, "Well, uh, I don't know if we can project anyone for more than ten saves in the right, Rays yeah. over a full season." <laughs> And they, they've given us you know multiple years of proof of why we shouldn't. So I don't think that's necessarily cowardice or, or a mistake or anything. I but it is interesting when you think about Kenley Jansen. So with Kenley, we started to see a change in how they were using him in times where it mattered more in the postseason. It broke in a way where he kind of found the extra ticks again and ended up being helpful again by the end yeah. of the postseason. But... Now that they've won their title, I wonder if that changes their thinking with how they use Jansen. I think he's also finally getting to the final year of his contract, too. 
So maybe that changes something. Use him as a closer to make him like the the Dodger closer for that dynasty. And he was the guy all along. And we don't know what you're talking about. He <laughs> he never lost the role. He was always the closer. Well, well, I'm pretty sure he wasn't for a little bit. No, no, he he was always the closer. <laughs> I mean, that's what the that's what some of the books will say. Like, yeah, right, Kenny exactly. Jackson was the closer <laughs> on all the great Dodgers teams, and that's mostly true. That's yeah. just not not perfectly true. <clears throat> but anyway, I mean, I do know that like Derek Cardi. Um, had like a, a a series of investigations for what works to predict uh, closers, save situations, closer role changes, that sort of deal. And most of the stuff did not work. You know, uh, there's a slight uh, effect for velocity and strikeout rate. Um, and then the number one thing is role. And who determines role? The man, the the coaching staff. So you have to consider role there. Um, I think lineup changes might just be matchup stuff might just be you know recent health stuff i'm not i'm not sure that i'm going to um i'm not sure i'm going to ding bellinger next year i think uh it was a lost year and i'm willing to take bellinger in the second round um and i think i'll laugh all the way to the bank it's interesting because if you look at a leaderboard from the last three seasons i've talked a lot about combining the last two as i've tried to put rankings together and they're coming out monday uh, Cody Bellinger has a 137 WRC plus and started 2018. It's a 276, 369, 535 line. Max Muncie has a 138 WRC plus. So yes, that's one, one unit higher. <laughs> a 244, 372, 516 line. They are very similar in terms of homers. Bellinger 84, Muncie 82. Uh, walk rate actually favors Muncie, 15.8 to 12.6. K but rate, batting of course, average, which most of us play with, favors Bellinger. Yeah, so for our purposes, Cody Bellinger's the better player, and he steals some bases too, which Muncie yeah. will get you a hand, maybe a handful over a full season, but that's, you're not, you're, you're kind of happy with a handful, and you're probably not going to get any. So I think that's part of why we think, as a fantasy community, that Bellinger's a better player. The thing I would wonder about from more of a lineup construction standpoint is if you're looking at two players whose on-base percentage and slugging percentages are pretty comparable, do you want the guy who puts more balls in play hitting higher or lower? Or does that not even factor into how you break the tie? No, I think you want higher OBP, higher, and more balls in play lower. Right, more balls in play lower means the guys that have similar OBP, like if Muncy is getting on base just as much as Bellinger, and Bellinger puts more balls in play. You want Bellinger after Muncie. You want Bellinger after Muncie. So the Dodgers are doing it right. It doesn't necessarily mean that Muncie's the better hitter of the two indefinitely. It just means that based on those two guys being almost identical, their differences sort of support their lineup being constructed that way. Yeah. And the lineup stuff is interesting, but the difference between one lineup slot and the next is 17 plate appearances over the course of a full season. So, you know, if he ends up too lower than Muncie, that would be 30 plate appearances for a full season. And that would be totally negated by all the times Muncie sits against a lefty or for injury or because uh, some positional thing because his defense isn't as good. So... I wouldn't project uh, Muncie for more plate appearances either. As far as the order of starters in the rotation, and this is something that I think teams try to map out from the time that the spring training schedule begins. Like There's a the big calendar board, and they're trying to make sure that 
everybody lines up with the days they throw in the spring to end up on track for how they want to begin the season. All it takes is a minor injury along the way in spring training to sort of shake up that order a little bit and you change your plans and your two becomes your one or your three becomes your one just because of how those types of things play out. So do you see any anything you want to read into with how teams order their starters? I mean, if, if they were all completely healthy the entire time, I could see maybe using it to break a tie, but usually there's some sort of a guy rolled an ankle Guy missed a day of throwing because he had to go do something on his off day. You know, all these little things can shake it up. Walker Bueller uh, yeah. buying some blisters, yeah. And that, that messes the whole thing up. Like, I think the guy that that I'm thinking about right now is Julio Urias, right? They didn't treat him as a top three starter necessarily. They kind of kept using him at the end. And yet, wasn't he on the mound when they won? Yeah, yeah. he was. He threw the last pitch. So, like, he's still pretty important to them. And I think he's a great pick next year. So, I'm not, not going to denigrate him for them using him after Gonsolin a couple times. I don't no, because, again, that's more specific to matchups and, and what you're trying to get yeah. the other team to do with their lineup and the flexibility you want to have to go Bullpen certain usage, ways in certain You know, they events. had, like, yeah. days of rest, you know. Like, yeah, I think... I think uh, I think it is worth thinking about. I think it is mostly worth thinking about in the bullpen. Yeah, so bullpen one, batting order, probably a little more important than rotation order, but both quite a bit less important than I think bullpen. So. And I think, as we've learned in recent years, it's leverage. It's the difficulty of the situation that I think gives us an insight as to how good a team thinks any one of its relievers actually are. I think pretty much every team is now looking at Oh, the two, three, and four hitters are coming up in the seventh. Let's use our best reliever here. We're getting much closer to that being the norm than we were even just a couple of years ago. Which I guess would be an argument that they, they still thought Nick Anderson was one of their best relievers, but it's pretty obvious that Fairbanks was much better and Castillo. And I think this is where it's the old hammer and chisel that we've talked about on the show. Uh, you know, I, I think the... The numbers that lead you to believe that Nick Anderson is the best reliever in the Rays bullpen, those come from a, a longer window of time. Those are easier to understand. They're easier to work with. The the chisel, the, the fine-tuning, the adjustment, figuring out when he's not that guy anymore, that's the hard part. That's where it kind of swings back to trusting your eyes or having something in your numbers on a granular level that you trust as an indication that Things Pitch are not move, quite man. where they Pitch are. Pitch velocity. Right, right. <laughs> Those are huge, huge, huge. If I was doing DFS, I would be all over pitch movement and pitch velocity. Yeah, maybe um, you know, maybe we'll work on that a little bit in 2021, at least behind the scenes and, and tinker a little bit because uh, I've got some interest in that. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, a lot of great questions. Thank you for that one, John. Uh, I think that's going to do it. I think that's everything we needed to get to on today's episode. So a lot of theory, a lot of fun stuff. If you have questions for us, reach out. Rates and barrels at theathletic.com. If you don't already have a subscription, you should get one. They're $1 a week. Theathletic.com slash rates and barrels is the link to get that offer. On Twitter, he is at Enoceris. I'm at Derek Van Riper. We are back with you on Monday. Thanks for listening. 